Hello and welcome to Anybody, Everybody, the podcast that celebrates diverse bodies and body image. Through storytelling and science, this is a podcast where we explore the ways in which body image is experienced among different social identities, such as ethnicities and cultures, genders, body types and abilities, to better understand how we can promote healthier body image for everyone. I'm your host, body image researcher, Fajal Longhurst, and every week I'll be asking an interviewee about their story to learn a new perspective on body image. Hello everyone. Today I am joined by Charlotte Markey, who is a professor of psychology at Rutgers University Camden and is the founder of its Health Science Centre. Charlotte is a body image and eating disorder researcher who has published around 100 publications, including book chapters and peer-reviewed journal articles, and has been featured across numerous news and magazine outlets, such as the New York Times, Time Magazine and The Economist. Charlotte has recently published her latest book, Being You, the body image book for boys, in companion to the body image book for girls, Love Yourself and Grow Up Fearless, which was published in 2020. While we learn a little bit about Charlotte's research, she actually joins us today to talk about her experience as an individual with a chronic health condition. In today's episode, we begin by talking about her journey into motherhood and how this was met with the additional hurdle of receiving a diagnosis and navigating chronic pain while being a mother of two. We move on to discuss how chronic pain has affected her relationship with her body and how she continues to manage all while being a leading author and researcher in the field. I hope you enjoy. Welcome, Charlotte. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you for joining us. I'm so excited to have you on the podcast. Um, So as some people um, are now more aware, you're a body image researcher in the field, but also you're here to talk about your own personal perspectives So I thought uh, we could start by asking you to tell us a bit about you and about your condition. Yeah, so first, I guess, professionally, um, I've been a professor of psychology and health sciences at Rutgers University in the U.S. for um, 21 years now and studying these issues for even longer pertaining to body image and eating behaviors. Um, and I've written a number of books, including, um, books for girls and boys about body image and, um, how to try to work to achieve positive body image. Um, so personally, I, am you know, middle-aged, I have two teenagers of my own. I, um, have also been dealing with, um, my own health issues, I'd say for about, 15 years now. Um, And in some ways, this makes me lucky because um, I am one of the few people I feel like who um, started having some sort of health issue and then actually got a diagnosis within a year and got some sort of treatment because um, I see all too often um, in support groups and other um, groups I've engaged with that people who deal with chronic illness of any kind, often it takes just, you know, absolutely years to get any sort of attention 
or treatment. Mm-hmm. Um, and my symptoms began following the birth of my daughter, and they um, probably are not actually related to having had her in a direct way. Uh, she's my second child, and I had, I had two babies in two years, which I don't necessarily recommend. Um, but it, sometimes that's the way life goes. And um, and so part of what confused things for me is that after you have a child, um, or in my case, even my second child, you know, your body goes through a lot and you're not sure what's normal or not. And even when I went to my provider and one of the main symptoms was just like, I had to keep going to the bathroom all the time. And um, I felt um, like I just hadn't completely healed from childbirth. And they were like, oh, no, that's normal. Um, your hormones are, are readjusting, your estrogen levels are up and now they're down. Um, and, and so I got a lot of like, well, and now you're breastfeeding. So this is all sort of to be expected. And that was the sort of feedback I got for, you know, nearly a year from medical providers. And the pain became just really excruciating in terms of um, not just bladder pain, feeling like I had like a a urinary tract infection, but just sort of then it became more diffuse in terms of pelvic pain more generally. Um, And it was just really uncomfortable to do anything you know, sitting was uncomfortable, sleeping was uncomfortable. (laughs) I already wasn't sleeping because I had a one-year-old and an infant. Um, So finally then at at some point around the one-year mark, I think I was diagnosed with um, a chronic illness called interstitial cystitis, um, which is a bladder disorder. And it tends to be unfortunately comorbid with a variety of other health issues, um, including vulvodynia, which is just sort of vaginal pain, um, pelvic dysfunction, irritable bowel syndrome, fibromyalgia. Um, and it's just not always clear what causes what, what's the chicken and the egg amongst these different health problems. And there's very few treatments, frankly. So it's a lot of learning to adapt your life um, to a, a body that doesn't function the way it once did. And sort of the irony of this has never been lost on me as someone who studies body image, that, um, you know, even if you know your body is going to change, whether it be pregnancy or aging or illness, um, then when you're actually experiencing it, it's incredibly challenging, especially if you're not feeling heard by medical professionals or you're not really getting treatment or relief. Mm. So beyond, and so often a lot of, um, while this was after your second child, there still is always, no matter how, like each time you still kind of feel like you have this adjustment period with yourself and your body after you give birth. But in addition to that, you had this whole new kind of, um, not kind of hurdle to overcome basically and compared to even though you um whilst you had your the experience of your first child did you find that additional hurdle um how did you find that kind of navigating that on top of having the bodily changes that comes with having a child 
I had two preemies. So my son was born five weeks early um, and I had had a relatively normal pregnancy. And then when he was born, um, it was very surprising. I was not in labor and my water broke and he was born less than two hours later. So um, I was like, it sounds kind of silly now. I know <laughs> I was really not ready yet. <laughs> um, I thought I had at least another month. And then with my, when I was pregnant with my daughter, um, I had problems the entire pregnancy and I ended up being diagnosed as having a placental abruption and then um, an emergency delivery. And she was born 12 weeks early. So she was in um, a neonatal intensive care unit for seven weeks. And it was, it was pretty um, traumatic because I was still caring for a Mm one-year-old and then um, it wasn't clear she was going to live. So we were dealing with um, kind of just that level of trauma. And I think, you know, I had, as a body image researcher, anticipated maybe some concern or some challenge associated with body image, um, just experiencing pregnancy. Yeah. And to be honest, I really didn't have any of that because I had so many bigger issues to deal with during this portion of my life. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, the transition to motherhood initially, like I said, it was just kind of traumatic. It was like I wasn't expecting. And then all of a sudden we have, you know, this baby and we were able to bring him home. He didn't stay in the hospital, but but he had some digestive issues and just was not an easy baby at all. Not that any of them really are, I think. But, um, you know, I wasn't worried at all about, like, am I going to be able to get back into my clothes or something? Like, I just, you know, it was, uh, I was really in the trenches. And I had really barely emerged from the trenches, and I started doing it all over again. Um, and so I do think that probably the cumulative stress of all of this is, is part of what um, contributed to my own development of illness. I do think that the predisposition was probably always there. I see some similar symptoms in other family members that um, maybe just have never been exacerbated by life experience or stress um, to the point then where they really develop illness. Um, So um, I think that, you know, to answer your question then in in that context, the transition to, to parenthood and sort of being in the trenches and what that body image experience was like was I mean, I really didn't even have time to think about it. So um, it really, it wasn't the issue I thought it would be, you know. Um, I was really focused on just like, you know, eating whatever I could to sustain myself and then to be able to breastfeed my children. And, um, and, you know, those years were kind of a blur, frankly. And in, in some ways, once then I started, you know, having a harder time functioning, I think it was, you know, three years or so, I really had not slept through the night and I had been caretaking and I had been working that whole time. We had no maternal leave policy. So I was still working too that whole time. And it really wasn't until I was clearly at a place where I couldn't really function so well that then I was forced to think about myself. Yeah. And, um, and that has shifted, and not entirely a bad way, um, my perspective about body image and how I think about my own body. Um, because 
when your body is not functioning and you're trying to get it to function as well as possible, you do worry less about how it appears and you don't take for granted um, just that piece of, you know, functionality. And, and I think the, the, the part of our body image, that's just, you know, how do we feel in our skin? How comfortable are we? Um, has different layers, right? So you can feel good about your appearance, but not feel good functionally. You can feel, um, you know, like sometimes I think you have to keep it in the context of age too, right? So I feel fine for my age in some ways, but um, in other ways I don't because um, my body is is not as functional as, as a lot of people um, my age. Um, but I think I kind of went on a tangent there, so I apologize. Absolutely no worries at all. That kind of le- links me to my next question and you've somewhat already answered aspects to it. Um, is could you describe your relationship with your body before you began to experience chronic pain and how does that compare to now whilst now having to navigate chronic pain i think that uh, my relationship to my body in some ways was just i don't know almost more superficial um i think that my concerns were probably frankly more superficial um i think like most women i I had some appearance and body concerns. I think um, at that point in my life, so this would be like my late 20s, early 30s, um, I wouldn't say that they were unusual or extraordinary or even troubling concerns, but just fairly normative concerns. And um, I think then when you're experiencing chronic illness, you really have to, to shift and you have to think about um, it's almost really not to be dramatic, but survival. Um, you know, so you your your relationship in terms of these appearance factors changes, whereas it's not about looking a certain way to look that way all the time, as it also becomes then a mechanism to sort of pass as a normal person. Um, and you know, especially um, when you're dealing with a urological sort of gynecological constellation of symptoms, it's not like I'm going to explain these symptoms to my male colleagues at work, right? So it's easier just to pass as as being healthy, frankly, mm-hmm. right? Um, that in some ways that's a coping mechanism, um, and. Certainly, I'm, I'm pretty open, obviously. I'm, I'm talking with you. I'm pretty open about um, body image in general, my, my body image, my health. Um, and, and I'm, frankly, more comfortable talking to women who have maybe had some similar or can imagine some of these experiences anyways. Um, but I do think that, you know, once you encounter chronic illness, it's, it forces you to, to reevaluate and and there are some good things about that. I never would go as far as to say, like, I'm grateful for experiencing this. It's been incredibly challenging. Yeah. Um, and I wouldn't wish it on anyone. And I don't wish chronic illness on anyone. Um, but most of us will encounter chronic illness. It's just, 
you know, in, inevitable. If we want to live a long life, then something breaks down. You know, the story of our bodies is the story of its parts in many ways. And those parts break down across time. And even if we take really good care of ourselves, even if we try to do all the quote unquote right things, it doesn't always matter. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we all have our own genetic and biological baggage we bring into this world and you are dealt that hand. And so you have to determine, you know, how are you going to manage it? How are you going to play that hand? Definitely. So you kind of somewhat describe uh, a period of adjustment, to say the least. Um, and so in what way do you act towards your body now? So that is how do you respond and treat it in a way that has made you feel at least a lot more uh, positive or at least um, in a way that helps you manage it constructively? Yeah, I think I really, I think the period of adjustment was long for me, um, in part because I think I have a great deal of faith in medical science, and I, part of me just kept waiting for um, someone to explain how they were going to fix this, right? Um, and the idea that, like, no, you might just kind of have to live with a lot of these symptoms just felt so insane to me, especially, you know, in my early 30s. It just seemed like, no, wait, like, when you get older, you have to deal with these things. But why, at, like, 32, would this be my life? And so I really resisted, I think, um, this becoming part of my life, part of my identity. Um, I don't even know if to this day I really feel like it's an important part of my identity. That's like really a public piece of it anyways. Um, but I do think that acceptance has really built across time and a lot of accommodation. And I think that that is valuable for everyone to get to know your body better as you age and as it changes and to accommodate it. And so that sort of experience um, extends beyond illness, you know, and when I mean accommodate it, I think, uh, for example, I've come to learn that I will feel better if I get a decent night's sleep. And occasionally I stay up too late um, and sometimes I have too much work to do or, or whatever. I have a hard time sleeping, but for the most part, like I need to sleep. And if I don't, I will be in more pain. And so that just has to become a priority. Um, and the same thing with exercise, you know, exercise helps me feel better. It helps me manage symptoms. It helps me manage stress and it becomes part of my schedule. And I don't feel apologetic about that. Um, it's unusual in the, in the job I do in some ways uh, as an academic that, um, you know, we, we have very flexible schedules, but we're also expected to be, you know, on campus or in class at certain days and times. And, and I schedule, you know, exercise into, into my life. And I'm pretty, usually pretty inflexible about that, frankly, because I just need that to function. Mm -hmm. Um, and, um, you know, other things are more minor, uh, like I have, 
really comfortable clothes. I have spent time um, making sure that, um, you know, like I like to look nice and professional when I go to work, but I have a lot of clothes with elastic waists. And that's because um, if you have chronic pelvic pain, you don't want something tight in that, on that part of your body. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, some, some things are little and some things are big. And, and I think that this is important and valuable for all of us, you know, maybe not until adulthood necessarily, but as we um, experience adulthood to just realize like what our bodies need and what makes them feel good mm-hmm. and to really prioritize those things. But it's interesting because you mentioned things like good sleep, exercise, comfortable clothing, which I'm I'm sure in thinking that lots of people would say, oh, yeah, of course. But for someone like you managing chronic pain or a chronic illness, there's that added layer or dimension to it of, but I'm doing these things to manage my condition and to manage my symptoms. So there's just a bit more nuance to that than what meets the eye. So it's, do you ever feel like maybe you haven't had an opportunity to really have to have such a conversation, but at least does it not, does it play in your mind that maybe people are like, oh, well, yeah, or at least maybe just in society in general, there's just this very superficial notion of what self-care is. (laughs) And no, it's a lot more complex. And do you ever find that maybe you need to communicate that to people? I think I'm terrible at communicating this to people. <laughs> I should not be held up as an example at all of how to handle some of this. Um, I think that, you know, honestly, I, I use the term self-care and I, I write about it and I offer advice about it um, in my books. I don't actually really like the term self-care very much. I no. feel like it's been really co-opted in a way to suggest something like, you know, we should all be taking bubble baths and, um, you know, a bubble bath is great if that's your thing. Um, so I don't mean to be disparaging of of that. And certainly that can be self-care, but I also think that there's culturally sort of this weird contradiction where, um, we, we seem to get a lot of messaging about like, you should work really hard. You should have these really, um, achievement focused goals. You, you need to do all of these things that, you know, deprive you of sort of balance in your life and then just take a bubble bath to make up for it. And, you know, like, like if you, if you run yourself into the ground, but then, you know, like just get your nails done. Um, (laughs) and and, and that's not really how it works. You know, that's not really what taking care of your, your body should look like, I think. And so, um, I love getting my nails done and, you know, I, like I said, take a bath if you want to. Um, but I think that that self-care should encompass a lot of things that we just do every day. Um, and like I said, you have to get to know what you need. And for some people, they run, I think, very well on, you know, less sleep, perhaps. Um, there's a reason why there are recommendations for adults to get at least seven hours of sleep. 
because most of the data suggests that truly we function better cognitively, emotionally, um, even physically with at least that much sleep. But, you know, some people probably can get just seven and feel fine. And I notice a really big difference if I get closer to eight. Um, and that sounds really luxurious to some people I know, but sorry. I need more than eight personally. Eight is my minimum because being, um, I'm an autistic individual and I think it's quite common for autistic folks to kind of actually need a lot more sleep than the usual person because our minds are working that much harder sometimes to kind of navigate the neurotypical world. So I think the point or like the point of my question was, is just kind of like getting people to understand that there there is this notion of self-care that it needs to be a lot more individualistic and just a bit, there's a lot of nuances to it. Um, So, but thank you so much for kind of raising that point because I think hopefully a lot of people will kind of be a bit more critical to the term of self-care which is needed. So as someone who has, who experiences chronic pain, are there any societal factors such as media and the um, body ideals uh, which impacts your relationship with your body? I mean, I think sometimes when I think about physical ideals or the, the imagery we all see, it does lead me to feel some sense of, of loss because um, on the one hand, I just feel older and detached from a lot of those ideals in a way that's actually kind of wonderful. Like, you know, I'm not 20. I'm not trying to bear my midriff anymore, if I ever was really. <laughs> um, you know, like that's just, I, I just don't care about that in the way that I might have at, at a younger age. Um, on the other hand, you know, I think that it's kind of hard to explain this, this sort of sense of loss almost of, um, of being able to prioritize appearance because, um, in some ways that feels easier almost, (laughs) um, or, I mean, not that that's easy. That's very complicated too. Of course, I know that. Um, given my work, but I think, um, yeah, I just, I almost feel like I'm just in a different category sometimes than um, sort of the normal person. And so I don't feel the same standards maybe that normal people would feel. Um, And, you know, I don't know that anyone really in my like social world sees it that way. I don't think that most people think like, oh, well, you know, I don't have a visible disability for better or worse. And so I don't think people think like, oh, well, you know, she's in a wheelchair. Of course, those are the pants she wears. Right. Like um, there there's no like processing of that, I think, by people around me, which I guess in some ways is fortunate or, or lucky or easier for me. Um, but but yeah, I just I don't. I don't feel like as um, connected to some of, of of that, I guess, if that makes sense. It does, perfectly. Well, at least to me. Because I think, <laughs> I, I feel like um, the the demographic of those with a hidden disability is is huge. But at the same time, uh, but 
of course, as you'd imagine, there's lots and lots of different types of hidden disabilities, but regardless, um, for that comes with lots of kind of complications and just lots of challenges that aren't kind of taken seriously. And that also comes with body image. So um, just because the fact that um, physically you appear okay, that doesn't necessarily mean um, that your your concerns are a lot more, that run deeper, I suppose. So like you mentioned, you kind of wish that you could just refer to just like the, uh, the basic uh, quote-unquote uh, concerns of just having appearance uh, concerns, but it runs a lot deeper. But because there's nothing physically wrong, again, quote-unquote, yeah. it just kind of gets wafted away. You're like, no, you're great. I think, oh. Yeah. And there's nothing to, like, signify uh, in any sort of overt way you know, how I'm feeling. It's not like I'm limping and some days I limp more. Right? right. And so even to, you know, like my husband, I'll, I'll just have to say sometimes, like I'm yeah. in a lot of pain today. Um, and, and that's really complicated. It's complicated in relationships because sometimes I feel frustrated that like people don't know, but of course they don't know. Mm -hmm. Like they can't tell. <laughs> it's not physically obvious. Um, and, you know, and often I don't want to, to belabor or spend a lot of time talking about this. And yet, on the other hand, sometimes I do want sympathy. And so it, it can be very complicated in terms of, like, the interpersonal dynamics. And yeah. um, I think that's something that's um, underappreciated because even if you don't want um, some problem you're dealing with, whether it be a mental health or physical health problem, to be like a big part of your identity or your interactions with others. Um, I think we all sometimes want to feel understood and supported, and it's hard to communicate um, some of that nuance. Like, I want you to appreciate that I have to deal with this. I want you to appreciate that um, this is hard for me, but I don't want to talk about it all the time. I don't want to... I don't want this to be like everything about who I am. I want to, you know, have a have a life in spite of it. Yeah. Um, I I think one thing that I have definitely appreciated across the last decade or so, though, is that I have a much greater sense of, you know, people aren't always what they seem, and you don't really always know what people are dealing with. Yeah. And it just it will lead you to be, you know, more empathetic. Um, and I, I think I was probably fairly empathetic to, to start with as a psychologist, but, um, I just have a greater sense. I think that, um, you know, sometimes it's good to ask questions and, uh, try to understand even if people aren't offering to you, um, what their concern is or their problem is, even if it's not a physical health issue, um, that just kind of, we all have our own baggage of one kind or another, it seems. Yeah. As you're, you may be well aware, um, being a researcher in the field is um, at least, uh, particularly among uh, research looking into disabilities, and just in general still, although things are looking up, um, 
is they hyper-focus on the negative aspects, so just kind of thinking about body dissatisfaction and things like that. So I think one question I'd really like to ask you is how might someone with a chronic pain or hidden disability um, feel more positively about their bodies, at least from your perspective? I think it, it really helps me to keep in perspective that... Um, in some ways, this does not make me extraordinarily unique, right? That we all, like I said, have our concerns, we all have our issues, and um, we have to identify what they are and decide how to manage them. And that an important part of being an adult is managing our health, right? And so, so that's sort of like the bigger self-care. It's almost like capital letter S, self-care, that I think... Um, it's just part of being a grown-up, right? I mean, for me, it unfortunately means a lot more doctor's appointments um, and more medication and, you know, things I would much rather, you know, not deal with. Um, but if you keep it in the perspective of everyone has something, we all have to do this uh, to varying degrees and at different points in our lives. And, um you know, it, it's, it's like, you just, I don't know, it's like you don't really have a, a choice, right? Like, what is the alternative but to cope? Um, I mean, I certainly have days where coping feels very hard. And um, I've had, you know, sort of phases in my life where I was dealing with more symptoms and maybe less sleep or, uh, you know, these things go together. And, and those phases are, have been really challenging, but I think also then they push me to, to get myself support in different ways. And, um, and I think that, you know, most of us need support. So whether it be a friend or a therapist or, you know, reconfiguring a relationship with a family member or a partner, um, I think that there can be some good that emerges from appreciating the importance of taking care of ourselves and, um, and what that means in the context of how we feel about ourselves and our relationships with others. Yeah. From an observer's perspective, does self-compassion come to it at all? Because I would imagine that maybe... Um, you say, oh, well, everyone has their baggage, of course, but at the same time, that shouldn't be a discredit of your own experience. So could you, do you ever feel like you ought like engage in greater self-compassion to be like, okay, it's okay to be, to have these struggles and... Yeah, I just wondered what your thoughts were on engaging in any sort of self-compassion. Is that something that's relevant to you? Um, I think it should be. I don't think I'm very good at it. <laughs> it's something that I'm really interested in. I've been reading about and actually trying to write about in relation to body image. And I think it's really important. And um, I think that especially it seems for, for women, there's just so much to prove. Um, and, and I, 
I feel like that's different for women than men in terms of being a good mother, being a good professional, being, you know, looking a certain way. It just feels like there's so many layers of things that we have to prove um, that, you know, being self-compassionate and appreciating that we're just not going to get an A plus in all those categories all the time (laughs) um, is important. And, and yet I think I'm very bad at it frankly. So it's something that I, I do think about and, and, and like I said, I intellectualized at least, but I don't know that I've actually applied very well. (laughs) Um, and you know, that's for me, that's always been sort of a coping mechanism though. And why I like studying these issues and why this is my, you know, profession is that, Uh, It's really helpful to me to intellectualize, to read about things, um, to try to understand, to study, to talk with other people, um, and and then to sort of work on applying some of it to myself as relevant. And and so I don't know if that's the best coping mechanism out there, but I would suggest it's not the worst. (laughs) Um, So I think that... um, when it comes to self-compassion, I'm still in the intellectualization phase and less in the application phase. Um, but fortunately, I've made it farther in other areas of my work um, in terms of how I think about um, my own body and body functionality and uh, body image and relationships and things. Well, I hope this um, serves as a good reminder to work yes, on thank it. You. I'm working my finger, but I completely yes. 100% feel you with that I'm just intellectualizing in positive body image in its entirety um and I think that's so common for a lot of researchers in whatever it is that they're researching because most of the time people get into research because of their own personal experience but that doesn't mean that they're um they don't practice what they preach but um I really hope that self-compassion for you and for everyone has improved because it is, it, I think it's a really, cha- it's easier said than done. It's not entirely, um, I don't think society makes it very easy for us to actually demonstrate it or engage with it. Um, and Mark, before I kind of go on to asking you about your research experience, um, how might someone who experienced chronic pain maybe develop or maintain a positive body image? Again, from your perspective, um, well, bit. I've actually done some research on this, driven by my own interest in part, because as um, more research on positive body image has emerged, um, you know, something we see in a lot of this, this research is a focus on functionality, right? Like start valuing your body for how it works and all the things it does for you. And so my question, given my own experience in part, was well, but how do you do that when your body's just not really working, right? Or it's causing you so much trouble, essentially. Um, and some of the, the findings from my own research suggested the importance of acceptance, that, you know, coping is really an important part of it. It's not how much pain or how severe your illness is as much as sort of how well you can accommodate and cope. Um, and so I think that a lot of that has to do with how we frame some of it. It's not, um, obviously it's not a contest who has like the worst problem. Um, and, and then to a certain extent, it doesn't matter, right? Like if you're struggling, if you have an issue, that's very real. 
And so then how do you feel better about your body and how do you feel better about yourself and how do you manage? Um, I do think some of it is getting good support, um, whether it be medical providers or um, psychologists or um, I think there's really not a lot um, in the U.S. and I suspect the U.K. is similar of, you know, chronic pain sort of physicians or practitioners. Um, and, you know, now that people appreciate the addictive nature of opioids, <laughs> um, now there's like a withholding of pain medication, which is really problematic if you, you know, are dealing with really severe pain. So, you know, it, it's complicated. There's a lot to navigate in terms of just sort of the healthcare system that you live within. Um, but I do think that just seeking out the support and you just have to be really determined sometimes to get the support and the treatment you need. And I hear this so often from other people um, who deal with, you know, what I deal with interstitial cystitis or people who deal with, um, you know, eating disorders that people that are in my own research that oftentimes, you know, one of the worst parts is just advocating for yourself because when you feel awful or you're struggling, the last thing you need is that on top of it to have to advocate for yourself. Um, but that is very often the reality. So all the better if you have people who can help you with that um, in terms of the logistics. Uh, but I think that, you know, being stubborn and not giving up and advocating for yourself is a really important piece of, of getting yourself to a place of acceptance where you can manage and cope with uh, whatever illness you're dealing with. Yeah, thank you. I would like to now talk about your experiences as a body image researcher. Uh, research into body image has historically focused on white college age women. However, we're slowly seeing better representation among new social identities such as uh, disabled individuals. Uh, so based on your experiences, what challenges have you faced when conducting or disseminating research among these special populations? Yeah, I think even before um, I was dealing with um, my own illness, I was really interested in expanding body image research to include people of um, different sexual orientation, different genders, different um, lived experiences. That's something that has always really appealed to me uh, far beyond just any of my own personal experiences because I do think that body image is so much about uh, just this sense of who we are and how comfortable we are with ourselves. And if you're of any sort of a minoritized group, that there are just extra layers of concerns often. And it's interesting because in, you know, doing this work for so long now, um, when I present or share in public sort of forums, research about even just boys and body image, um, I still will get pushed back. I still um, often get people saying like, oh, but that's not really a boy issue or, um, you know, there's really a mythology that's pervasive, that body image issues are like adolescent girls who are white. 
and that's like the demographic we should be worried about. And um, there's of course growing recognition among research scientists, probably even before research scientists, practitioners were seeing this and therapists. Um, but I think the public's slower to warm to the idea, to be honest. And I'm surprised when I get pushed back, but it's good. It's good to be challenged. It's good when people um, test your own assumptions, I think, as a scientist and, and, and force you to articulate why these issues matter to, to everyone. Um, and I can't tell you how many times I've had to say, everyone has a body image. It doesn't matter what your identity is. You have a body image and it can be a positive piece of your psyche and your physical experience, or it can be a negative piece. And of course, some people fall between those sorts of extremes, but um, you know, to say that it's not relevant is, it's like saying, you know, I don't know, I don't need to breathe or something. Like it's just, that's not true. Mm -hmm. Also, I guess speaking from my very, very initial experience of conducting research, very initial, um, is understanding that some of the challenges is a lot of these special populations that are underrepresented for a reason in that um, their access to engaging in research is so limited, like there's so many barriers, like systemic structural barriers. And I was wondering if you had any experience and anything to share on those point, on that point. Yeah, I mean, even right now, I'm I'm part of a research group, and we're um, doing it's a broader health needs assessment, but there's a body image component of it for transgender non-binary individuals, and it's challenging because to do good research, you need to have a lot of people participate in your work. Yeah. Um, there's not always as many resources or the funding to really compensate people as much as you would like to. Um, so that's a barrier. And then oftentimes minority groups, um, they have some hesitancy um, in terms of being involved because they're mistreated in so many contexts, frankly. Um, or they feel underappreciated at the very least. <laughs> um, and so, you know, then you're asking them as a researcher to help you, essentially, right? And you can understand why people would say, like, why? <laughs> like, what is this going to do for me? Are you going to treat me fairly? Are you going to re represent me and my interests fairly? Um I think that's all incredibly legitimate. I think that, you know, some ways to try to overcome that is just to explicitly tell people, you know, that, I don't know, I, I was going to say, like, we're on the same side, but that, that sounds more divisive than I even mean for it to, but to, to you know, explain that you want to help make sure their voices are heard. Yeah. And that you can do that using the methods and the skills you have as a scientist. Um, you understand their concern. Of course, most of the research we do 
as social scientists, it's it's anonymous. So it's never one person that really risks um, anything, you know, coming back to them in terms of affecting their lives. But I think there are not inappropriate concerns about, you know, your group membership and, and how this work then would represent that, that group. And so I do think it's important as scientists to try to allay those fears, to make it clear when you're asking for consent um, that you're trying to make sure that there are services and support and understanding of all people, that all voices need to be heard. Um, and, and I don't want to sound all negative because I certainly had to, in doing research, especially we did a lot of research for years in my lab with um, gay, gay couples and they would come into the lab with their partners. And I mean, it's, I had so many um, participants thank us and actually say like, thank you for studying us. Like there's no studies of us yeah. um, in terms of like our health and our health needs and our relationships. And, um, and so that was really cool. That was, you know, it is, re it can be really rewarding and just, um, you can feel like you're doing something really meaningful as a researcher to, to reach into groups that are underrepresented in this work and in public spaces and to, to try to change that, even if it's just a little bit. So um, even though there can be those hurdles, I think it's, it's so important and it can be really rewarding. Yeah. It's, uh, it's frustrating because just having this one question is not enough. I need a whole another episode, really. But I think the main thing from my perspective as well is just it's dispelling the myth of like the the hierarchies that a lot of people would imagine in research. And also, I think a lot of the general public just find it very intimidating. They just kind of have probably a very thwarted um, idea of what, what what to expect. They're probably like in this very sterile environment. And it's it's not. It's, um, it's a, a lot of collaboration and like having just like a nice. It's having that open conversation. And I share with you in that um, so far in my research, when a lot of it has been using community involvement. And yeah, they say like, thank you for this opportunity because for a lot of people, not to say that we are counselors or it is a counseling session, but it has that kind of cathartic um, yeah. experience yeah. for people that can be really beneficial and really meaningful, both for the participant or for the bit for the individual and for the researcher. So yeah. it's articulating to people that research is not this, like I said, sterile um, experience it can be so meaningful and um, right a great opportunity to connect with one another um, but like I said I agree I think people often think that it's like we're evaluating and judging yeah. and then we're going to come up with like some final say about something right yeah. um, when in truth that's very very rarely at all how any of this goes and and you're right. I think it can be really meaningful to people to just know their voice is being heard. Yeah. Yeah. And that people care. Definitely. Yeah. And my last question for you is, um, do you have any exciting projects that you have planned in the future? Or uh, what do you see for the future in body image research? 
Well, lots of exciting projects. Um, to me, they're exciting. I don't know if they'll be exciting to other people, though. Um, but uh, so I'm, I'm finishing uh, writing a third book in the Body Image book series right now. It won't actually come out until 20, um, 2024. I'm like, what year is it? <laughs> um, and it's uh, so the, the book for girls and boys was intended mostly for sort of a a tween audience, you know, maybe up to like 15 or so. And so this next book is sort of meant to jump in where those books left off and try to help uh, young people as they navigate uh, approaching adulthood. And um, so body image is sort of the framework I use still to talk about a variety of mental and physical health um, issues and, um, and just sort of help provide evidence-based information as young people do approach adulthood and have to take care of their own health a lot more. They don't live at home, maybe have uh, relationships and things like that, that um, are sometimes difficult to navigate. So, so I'm excited about that. I'm, I'm getting to the last couple of chapters, one of which is on self-care and self-compassion. So I'm working on it again, intellectually at least. Um, but I'm really excited to see that come to fruition because I feel like every book project I work on, I learn more and I have more I want to include. And there are more people that I know in the field that I talk with. And, um, and then these books just keep getting longer. So I, I do think my, my editor has her work cut out for her. Um, but, but that's an exciting project to me. Um, in terms of research studies right now, I mentioned the, um, the study of transgender and non-binary uh, people, and I am really excited we have collected data from almost 200 people right now, and so we're hoping that, we, we were hoping for more, but it has been challenging. Yeah. Um, but, but still, I think in the new year, we're, we're hoping to start doing some analyses, so I think that's pretty cool. Um, I've also been, for a couple of years now, working on a project looking at how um, healthcare providers talk with patients about body image and weight, um, because we know that healthcare providers tend to get very, very little training when it comes to how to discuss these issues with patients. And we also know that a lot of times patients feel really shamed by providers. They don't feel like they have productive conversations when these topics come up. Um, and so some of my research, it's a little bit qualitative and quantitative trying to, to understand what's going on in these interactions better. Um, and I have had those data for a while, but have not had a chance to publish them. And I, I hope to do so and to pursue that work a little bit more because um, this may be a little naive of me, but I, I do really think that typically providers are well-intentioned and just don't have the training necessary to deal with these really complicated uh, psychological issues. And they um, all too often make things worse, not better. But if we had some data to sort of support some of these assumptions and to, I think, then maybe even someday affect how providers are trained. Um, that would just be really important, I think. Yeah, I hope everyone has enjoyed this and hearing your experiences. Yeah, thank you so much. Oh.